Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Life Science Marketing Radio. If this is your first time, thanks for tuning us in. This episode is being published Thanksgiving week of 2016, and appropriately enough, today we're talking about the sharing economy and what impacts it might have on manufacturers of life science products. There are definitely opportunities and plenty to think about. Because it's Thanksgiving, I want to take a moment to thank my sponsor, the Association of Commercial Professionals Life Sciences. You can learn more about this outstanding organization at acp-ls.org. I also want to thank all of my guests from the past year. They've been generous with their time, their expertise, and their insights, which has been tremendously valuable for me, and I hope inspiring and helpful to you. Finally, I do want to thank you, my listeners. I appreciate your support and all the great feedback you've given me. I hope you get to enjoy gathering with your friends or family this week. I'm fortunate to be hanging out with four generations of family this weekend and hopefully catching some waves on the coast. Now, let's jump into it, shall we? Today, my guest is Keith Oswitz. He is the vice president and head of marketing at the Science Exchange. Um, And today, we're going to talk a little bit about science in the sharing economy. So first of all, Keith, tell us uh, exactly what the science exchange is, its purpose, and how it works. Sure. All right. Well, Chris, the the idea is uh, it's, it's uh, the world's leading marketplace for scientific research. And what we're trying to do is connect buyers and sellers of scientific services. So in, in just to bring it back to the idea of the sharing economy, um, you know, the, the, the largest, um, let's say, um, distributor of hotel rooms is Airbnb, and they don't own any of the rooms. And uh, you can also make the connection to uh, Uber as the largest, let's say, taxi service in the world, but they don't actually own any of the taxis. So scientific services is a way that you can um, help buyers and sellers of scientific services meet. And we have an online marketplace and a sourcing service here that allows this to happen. And, um, and that's, that's basically uh, what we're trying to do. So in, in a little more detail, right? So how do people either become a, a provider or a requester of scientific services and what types of people are signing up at either end of that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an interesting thing where we're kind of helping two sets of customers, if you, if you will, uh, scientific service providers, they have instrumentation or expertise that, um, are unique in the world, or they, they have extensive experience. And, you know, when I worked at previous companies, um, we would sell these $500,000 instruments. And inevitably, when I would go visit the labs and and talk to the scientists, I'd say, Oh, let's, let's go take a look at the instrument. And I'll, you know, show you this or, um, you know, um, help you with the software. And, 
you know, there were always, the instruments are always in the corner, uh, oftentimes not being used. And, um, it's a very expensive proposition to have a half a million dollar instrument sit in a lab that's unused. And of course, um, having hired staff and, uh, they're sitting there and they're, and if they're not doing any research, they're just kind of, you know, costing money for, for the lab. And the idea is you can monetize that and sell those services around the world. So we're definitely trying to address that side of the market where um, anywhere around the world, if there's uh, unique expertise, uh, certainly, um, or, or unused equipment that, uh, that uh, um, people can put on our service to offer to others, we're trying to help them. And then the other side are requesters. These are um, pharmaceutical, biotech companies, um, academic researchers, uh, government researchers. And what they're looking to do is, you know, in a lot of ways, what they want to do, obviously, is have the data, not the instrumentation, right? That's, that's ultimately what they want is the, is the information. It's the data so they can uh, move along their research. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the companies now are moving to a model where they're outsourcing most of their scientific research. And the reason they're doing that, and I've talked to a lot of uh, scientists about this, is, you know, if you, the, the scientist brings a lot of experience, but, but most of all, it's the knowledge, right? Their ability to interpret data and direct the research. And, how they get the data it doesn't really matter. Um, obviously, they want the best providers of this data so that the data is, is high quality, accurate, and um, obviously safe and secure, meaning it's, uh, the service provider has passed all the, the legal requirements that they need to continue. But, but what they really want is the data. So um, they come onto our platform or they use our sourcing service and uh, they identify the right service provider and often will provide quotes to them from different uh, service providers using our concierge service. And, you know, we provide a lot of um, um, confidence that they'll be secure in their transaction, that, uh, that, they, um, that they will not have many uh, legal issues to deal with, right? They, signed a master services agreement with us and we've already signed master service agreements and other um, legal agreements with our service providers so they can get started right away and so they jump over the hurdles of of finding and identifying a service provider because that often takes um several weeks and then there, of course there are uh, the months sometimes of administrative contracting and compliance processes so they get around all that by by um, just using Science Exchange, and we have over 3,000 different service providers. So they they know that they're going to get the right service provider, and they're going to get started quickly. So once they find identify a few service providers that they're interested in, the service providers provide quotes, and they include all the details that are um, including the um, how they're going to do the experiment, what the data analysis is going to be what the starting material should be. And then the, the requester can review all of those, pick the right one for them, and then um, 
uh, get going. Using our platform, they can then manage the project, communicate with the service provider directly, and um, take it all the way to completion. Uh, that just uh, triggered a question in my mind. Do, do people ever um, submit the same experiment to two service providers just to check and see if oh, both yeah. of them are getting the same result? Well, what they typically do is uh, they'll they'll send in um, – well, they do it to multiple – they submit the uh, request to multiple service providers only to, to compare quotes. Once they're, um, the project is up and running, they typically stick with one service provider because, you know, they can include uh, controls to make sure that the data is consistent with um, the experiments that have happened in other situations or, or, okay. infer- or data that they've done themselves. And, um, yeah, and we also just uh, touch on a couple of other um, options when finding service providers and using them. We have ways that uh, people can filter by instrumentation or even location. So, for instance, if somebody has has used a particular mass spec to get um, the data previously, and they would like to compare it to the uh, using the same instrumentation, right, and the same kind of data output, then they can search on our website using that uh, parameter. And once they find that those you know service providers, then they can get quotes from them. So they have a, a, a richer experience on our platform so that they can get the multiple service providers that are, are tailoring their project just for them. And then, um, then that provides that data consistency with things that they've done before. And then they can make that direct comparison. Nice. Okay. So this is really, I, I just like talking about this and this is how I got interested when I found out about what you're doing. It's really a shift in how science gets done. And as you mentioned, you know, scientists have knowledge and what they're looking for is data. Um, and mm-hmm. so now investigator interests and curiosity to some extent could become the limiting factor. And now, for example, younger scientists will spend less time perhaps figuring out how to adopt a new technique. I know when you're starting out and you need to do something different that where the expertise isn't your lab and you try to do it yourself, a lot of time can be, I won't say wasted because there is a learning there, but in the long yeah. run, you can envision and some people just aren't good at certain experiments. We always, you know, talked about the people in the lab who had good hands, right? And then there are mm-hmm. people who come up with an infinite number of ideas to test. And now mm-hmm. there's a possibility, I don't know how many years down the road, where you know, some people are looking at data and thinking up new experiments. And I know some of this is happening already. And the skill is outsourced somewhere else. Not to mention the optimization of capacity for instrumentation. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, when I was in the lab, you know, doing gels, uh, certainly, you know, you could waste a whole day doing it incorrectly. And I remember, um, you know, running gels and, and using the wrong gel or, or dropping the gel when I was early on in my, uh, my career there. And, yeah, and, and you bring up some really good points in the fact that um, it's optimizing what people do best, and it optimizes the service providers because they're the experts. They do this, uh, you know, depending on the experiment, lot dozens of times a day, 
And what they're doing is they're the experts. They've got all of the equipment calibrated. They've got a whole uh, workflow um, that's validated every day. And they can just, you know, go. They just they get the samples and they do it. And, um, and yeah, you, you can see, and there are, I mean, let me tell you what some of our um, requesters are doing. They, we do have virtual labs, people who they have an office, they have computers, they have meeting rooms, and they have absolutely no scientific equipment whatsoever, no laboratory space. And what they're doing is they're essentially outsourcing all the experiments that they need to do in order to prove a drug candidate is um, is is good and able to go to the next stage of drug development. So this is a very early stage uh, drug development, and what they're doing is they're doing a, a proof, and they take these um, NDAs and they will either try to sell it to pharmaceutical companies and saying, hey, hey, look at the data. This shows that this is worth pursuing, or you know maybe they eventually get their own. Um, laboratory and 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 do some of the work themselves but yeah we have the 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 innovation that's happening is is really amazing and you know there isn't a scientist that i talk to who doesn't say at some point in the conversation i sure wish this this was this was there when i was doing research because it's absolutely true it 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 optimizes what you do best and not everybody is meant to to be hands-on and doing the actual work themselves and honestly, think about just doing academic research. If you were to follow uh, your research through its normal path, it, you might start in immunology, and then you have to um, prove something using X-ray crystallography, and then you would, you know, could be doing cell culture, and then you could go into an animal model. I mean, there's there's no way that you can be an expert in all those things. So you, you have to start learning all of those things. And that takes an incredible amount of time. And if you don't have a vivarium or other facilities to maintain um, uh, animal colonies, then you have to start collaborating. And, you know, what, what Science Exchange is, is there for is to help you really concentrate on the research itself and less about the logistics of finding all of these things becoming an expert and all trying to become an expert in all these fields. It really, you focus on the research itself so that you, you know, you can, you can focus. And, and that's what we're really trying to do is, is let everybody do what they're best able to do. So that the research happens faster, happens uh, cheaper. And, um, you know, eventually I think this is the future. I think more and more science is going to be, is going to be going in this direction. Yeah, I, I I can't see how it won't. But so I want to get to the um, ideas around what life science companies and the marketers listening to this podcast, how they can incorporate this kind of thinking into whatever they're doing, whether it's whatever they're going to offer as a product or a service. But before that, let's talk a little bit. What are the implications for the funding agencies and labs that are looking for funding? How does this uh, model change how they're going to be thinking about experimentation in the future? Yeah, it's a good question. I think let's start with the academic field. Many times when you put in a, um, an application for funding, you have to prove that you have the capability to do what 
you are putting in the proposal and in, in the request for funding. And, and oftentimes um, you'll get denied funding if you can't prove that you, you can do animal models. And, you know, I've talked to scientists specifically about this. So what we're helping you do is to say, you know, here's a way that you can find a scientific service provider that has a vivarium or has a certain microscope that you need to have. And you can immediately start the project with them. So in that way, you're proving to the funding agency that you're ready to go. So I think the implication there is um, you're much more likely to get the funding that you're requesting if you if you use science exchange. And as far as the, um, and then the more, let's take a look at the implications for pharmaceutical, biotech, government labs, things like that. I mean, I, I think they're further along in the outsourcing process. I think, um, you know, the funding questions are, are less important for them because, um, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical company and you need to develop a drug and, uh, you know, if you've got to, I think, you know, it, it boils down to essentially if you've got the data to prove that this drug candidate can move along the drug development pathway, your program is going to get funded. Um, and, you know, I guess this looks, this touches upon the idea of internal competition for funding. And, um, you know, at any one point in time, pharma or biotech company will have multiple drug candidates and uh, people need to be able to sh kind of prove that a certain drug candidate is the one to pursue. And I think we help there. I think um, scientific uh, researchers that, that want to get that data have better availability when they use science exchange so that they can prove that point and move their drug candidate further along the pipeline. Uh, along the pipeline. All right. So then um, let's go back to the companies that are producing instrumentations or kits or whatever. Um, how can they think about something in the sharing economy about how they would serve their customers differently, maybe mm -hmm. about how they would market their um, products differently? Perhaps you know, someone actually needs a fair amount of capacity, but they're interested in a in a particular instrument, a mass spec, for example, like you said, um, maybe they could try there. Would they, you could possibly hook them up with somebody who's already using it um, on a revenue basis, not just being a nice guy and saying, oh yeah, sure, we'll let you do this experiment. Or are there internal applications people? Is there a potential revenue stream for them? Yeah, I. those are all good angles. I mean, I spent most of my career working for instrumentation manufacturers and reagents and consumables manufacturers. And, um, you know, they're, they're smart people. And I think, um, a lot of them have figured this out in a, in a way, but it's just going to go a little bit further. So let's, let's look historically at, at how this has kind of shaped the market. Uh, I, I, I know that Applied Biosystems back in the 80s was one of the first companies to say, you know, the instrumentation that we're going to make is going to be pretty expensive and it's going to be a little too expensive for your average independent researcher at an academic institution. So they got the idea to group academic researchers into these core facilities. So they would go to a university, a research university, and they would say, okay, 
you can't afford it, but there are five other people that also want this instrument. What if you got together, combined funding, purchased the instrument, and set up a core facility? It's a, a shared space within the university. And it worked. Uh, most of the, um, uh, the DNA sequencers that they eventually were selling um, were bought this way. And, you know, most universities now have core facilities where they do DNA sequencing um, specifically, but also mass spec work, um, cell culture work, and, and certainly microscopy. So this already kind of happened that, uh, that the instrument manufacturers adapted what they were doing to the market. And then along came, I, I would say, and I saw this in my own uh, career, where um, certainly in the 90s and the 2000s, a lot of the um, countries that are, were not traditionally research powerhouses like United States, Germany, UK, uh, you know, those are the, the, and Japan, those are the typical powerhouse countries that were able to afford some of the higher end instrumentation. Um, but research expanded beyond those countries. And you had India, China, um, Brazil. A lot of these, uh, these, these countries were coming up and, and trying to purchase the instruments that, uh, that the other countries already had. And the equipment manufacturers realized this, and they started making uh, cheaper instrumentation for the, those countries that didn't quite have the purchase power that uh, Western Europe and the United States had. So what I see happen, so the result of both of those trends is that most instruments come in kind of two varieties. They come in the high-end, high-throughput, um, very expensive variety, and then the version that is low-end, introductory. So in, in Europe and, and the U.S., they would maybe um, sell an introductory instrument to a small lab and then that would be the main instrument in um, uh, Brazil or uh, India or China. And um, so you kind of have this, this bifurcated market, let's say, where you, you have the high-end, feature-rich, high-throughput, the low-end, um, low-throughput, not so many features. And I guess how science exchange kind of will keep driving that is, in essence, the high throughput instrumentation will be sold to the service providers on science exchange that can do the, the most business, right? And so it's essentially a concentration of the high end so that um, they'll get even more feature rich. They'll become even higher throughput and you'll have instruments that before maybe you like a mass spec, I would say is not typically run every day, 24 hours a day. But I think the service providers, given a worldwide market on science exchange, will be able to run their instruments every day, seven days a week, and have remote monitoring and, and all the features that would c come with that kind of a high throughput instrument. And then on the low end, you would have probably um, maybe fewer of them. You know, this is a speculation. I don't know where this would necessarily go, but. Um, you know, we see uh, service providers in India and in China now in Brazil, in Mexico that are as high, you know, that is high throughput as any anywhere in the world. 
They often leverage the uh, cost advantage that they have. So I think you're, you're going to see um, more sales in the high end. And I think maybe fewer sales at the low end. And I think uh, instrumentation manufacturers will be able to maintain their um, their revenue by looking at the high end and um, obviously charging a higher margin because um, you know you've got uh, more features and and honestly that market will expand as 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 more and more labs in India and China and Brazil and and countries still to come buy buy those instruments. Um, so I kind of see that happening. I kind of see the bifurcation of the market that's happened in the last 30 or 40 years. I, I see that continuing and I see, I see the instrumentation manufacturers doing just fine, honestly. No, I, I see what you're saying. I hadn't really thought about that, but as you say, and, and this is exactly the type of answer, regardless of what your actual answer was, and I'm not disagreeing, but um, that I was looking for, like now, how can companies think about given this sharing economy, if they see it taking off, you know, think about where their production's going to shift, how they're going to market, um, mm-hmm. you know, and putting more high-end instruments into labs that are now going to be generating their own revenue. So there's another way, you know, that they're going to capture some revenue, maybe in a highly concentrated market because they're going to be, I would think naturally, some limit to the number of labs who are really good at something and they're just, and it's just going to go that everyone who needs a certain experiment is going to go to one of those premier labs for that type of experiment. Yeah, I mean, I, I do see that, but I also see the availability of science increasing. I think, um, you know, the activation energy to start your research was so much higher if you had to buy your own instrument. That, oh, sure. Um, suddenly they're going to have more customers. So I, uh, you know, any instrument manufacturer will be able to sell more. And obviously the revenue stream from consumables will be increased because people that weren't thinking of science now can do science. And we do have citizen scientists who want to test their water, or we even have people going onto the site who are interested in um, helping their, their child with their science fairs. Oh, it's um, there's a, a lot of citizen science that's happening. A lot of science that wasn't getting done before is now getting done. And then um, I want to touch on one thing you, you said about the instrumentation manufacturers getting into the services market. I, I really think that's going to happen more and more. I mean, I see because what happens um, and this, this did happen already with uh, the human genome project, right? If you remember the history of that, um, the DNA sequencers made by Applied Biosystems were so feature-rich and so um, that the the managers at, at Applied Bio said, you know, that no one's really taking advantage of this. They're not scaling up the way we expected. So they started Celera Genomics. And Celera Genomics' goal was to sequence the human genome, and they used Applied Bio uh, instrumentation. And they were sister companies. They're owned by the same holding company. So um, they got into the services business, and that, of course, spurred the the public effort to go even faster, and, of course, they sold more instruments. So I do think that there is a robust need for the instrumentation manufacturers to get into services. I think um, it's a very lucrative business. I think um, they're going to be the best 
sometimes and using their instrumentation. They're going to um, know the customers. They're going to, um, um, of course, augment their instrument sales with uh, service revenue. Um, you know, and there's of course a question about why would you compete with your 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 direct customers for your instruments? But I think, um, you know, I think that they can kind of maneuver through that that question. It's um, I, I am seeing more interest for manufacturers that I've worked with in the past, you know, companies that I've done that I've either worked for or done business with uh, to get into the services industry. I think, I think it, it follows just kind of a general trend. If I can get a little philosophical here, I mean, um, uh, Mark Andreessen, he has a, a good line that software eats everything. The idea is you're kind of dematerializing a lot of, uh, human activity where, um, something could have been done with lots of equipment in the past and lots of people. Now it's done with software and fewer people, fewer equipment, or less equipment, I guess is best to say. And I think that's happening to science. It's just kind of a general trend that you don't need to buy as much material. Um, you don't need as much as many atoms. You need bits. And I think that that's kind of happening in, in science too. But maybe it's not bits. It's just services are replacing instruments. And I think um, I think that's just a general trend outside of our industry too. Yeah, nice. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's um, it's thought provoking, and I think we'll definitely stimulate marketers in life sciences to think about what the future is going to hold. Uh, I'll give a pitch for the ACPLS. It was just at a at the annual meeting last week, and one of the sessions was really about what's what's our job going to look like in five years. And this was for marketers, but and. There were lots of opinions, and I know there's going to be some blog posts on the ACPLS blog about it, um, and we'll definitely share those results. But it's it's really fun to think about how the whole world and how science gets done is changing. And then just to end on a little bit of a humorous note, I think you mentioned this, like talking about um, science fairs, and I'm imagining this kind of ridiculous escalation of what kids are going <laughs> yeah. to show up with. Oh yeah, I have the yeah. full genome here. What do you got? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I sequenced all the uh, uh, all my pets, or I sequenced, you know, all the plants in my garden. Yeah, I mean, um, it's exciting. Yeah, and and I just like to to add one thing about how to help marketing. So I mean, this is obviously life science marketing radio. I just want to put a pitch in for for my own particular services uh, through Science Exchange. I mean. We do marketing uh, on Science Exchange to our um, our customers, and if you know people have a uh, service that they want to offer, um, you know we can help them get out there. I think there are a lot of scientists wondering, well, how do I get started? How do I get my uh, customers? How do I, you know, it's, we joke sometimes here that it's two guys in a fume hood, and um, they're very interested in getting customers and doing some science. And uh, we can help people get started. So, I mean, we're we're very excited about science and very excited about helping people achieve their dreams. Very cool. All right. Well, Keith Oswitz, it's been a pleasure talking to you, talking to you today. And thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed it. All right. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Definitely plenty to think about on multiple levels. First, 
is how the markets for scientific products might shift or expand. Second is the possibility of new offerings based on the concepts of the sharing economy, maybe as service providers or something completely new. And third, think about can your company create its own community that it serves in some new way? That's a fun thing to think about. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with two friends. I'm also working on an exciting new project that I'll want to share with you soon. So it would be a good idea to get on the email list at lifesciencemarketingradio.com slash LSMR. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.